0: Greetings wherever you are and wherever you are listening to this message. This is an unusual message as I am not in church and I am not in front of my congregation. We, like many houses of worship, have decided for public safety reasons to cancel all face-to-face meetings for at least the next 14 days. We will not worship together in person until Palm Sunday where we share Communion. Having said that, this sermon, this meditation will not be about the virus. It will not be about God's punishment or God's judgment. It will be about repentance, receiving the gift of God's grace and reaching out to those around us through the love of Christ. Our reading this morning comes from John's Gospel, the fourth chapter beginning with the fifth verse. It is our tradition at King's to stand for the reading of the Gospel. So, wherever you are, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. So, Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him, For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman just said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Now, if we were in church on Sunday morning, I would invite the children to come forward and I would show them that I hold in my hand a bottle of Gatorade Zero. This is one of my new favorite drinks. I love Gatorade, but as a diabetic, it's really not a good thing to drink with all the sugar and the salt. And they've come out with this new beverage, and I would share with the children that when I go to the gym or when I ride my exercise bike, I need to stay hydrated. And that the more I work, the thirstier I get. And that this Gatorade quenches my thirst. But if I continue to ride and I continue to work out, then I need something more to drink. That our bodies require nourishment and liquid And then I would finish by saying that Jesus satisfies our thirst for God. Like the sports drink satisfies my thirst for liquid and salt and electrolytes, Jesus satisfies my thirst for God. And if we put our lives and our trust in Jesus, we will never be thirsty for God again. Let's move to our sermon. Join me in a short word of prayer. Father, my prayer is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. The world is filled with lonely people. In fact, as I was preparing this sermon, I'm reminded of the Beatles song, Eleanor Rigby, and the verse about Father Mackenzie who writes the words to a sermon that no one will hear. Or I feel like that tree falling in the forest, if no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? It is my hope that you find this sermon online and that you can hear what I've prepared from the word of God. But mostly, I want you to hear that God is a seeker of lonely people. God is a seeker of broken people. God sent Jesus to this world to find people just like the woman at the well. Now, the woman at the well lived in a town called Sychar, which was in Samaria. And when the Jews came with Joshua to conquer the land that God had given them, the half-tribe of Manasseh and the half-tribe of Ephraim had asked to stay on the opposite side of the Jordan River, away from the promised land, because they found that that area was good for grazing their sheep and their goats and for raising their harvest. And God had granted them that land as their inheritance with the promise and the admonition that whenever the people of God were called into battle, that they would come and lead the battle. So Samaria became, after Solomon's son Rehoboam took the kingship, the capital of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was separated from Jerusalem. The lower kingdom, the southern kingdom, what we refer to as Judah, had Jerusalem as its capital and the northern kingdom had Samaria. And they felt that they were restricted from worshiping in Jerusalem because it was in a different country. The other thing that happened was the Northern Kingdom, without its spiritual root in Jerusalem, began to look for other ways to fill that thirst for God. They participated in the worship of Baal. King Ahab built a temple to Baal in Samaria, They intermingled with the other countries that God had told the Israelites to banish from Israel and they became half-breeds, not quite Jewish, not quite foreigner, a little bit of both. And they believed that the worship of God should remain at Shechem in the north where Joshua had worshiped. They believed that their descendants that their history made them people of God, and they even rewrote the books of Moses. Finally, in their sin, and we're talking about this on our Thursday night Bible studies, because their sin was so rampant and they were so unrepentant, God sent the Assyrians to punish Israel. He repelled the Assyrians from conquering Israel twice. And the third time, when Assyria conquered the Northern Kingdom of Israel, with Samaria as its capital, the Assyrians brought other nationalities, foreigners into the Northern Kingdom and forced them to intermarry. So now they were not only theologically separated from the Jews, and Jerusalem, but they were ethnically separated from the Jews, Jews in Jerusalem. And the Jews being, and using air quotes, purebreds looked down on the half-breed Samaritans. Now, in this town of Sychar, these theological and ethnic outcasts had a woman who was more outcast than they were. I want you to hear that. The woman at the well was the most outcast of the outcasts. We know this because she was drawing water at the heat of the day. The women would traditionally take their water drugs to the well in the morning, in the cool of the day, because these jugs were made out of uh, clay or pottery, or some of them were even made out of stone, and they would carry these jugs filled with water back to their homes for the day. And you don't want to do that when the sun is at its apex and that the temperature is at its highest. You want to do this in the cool of the morning. And for whatever reason, this outcast of outcasts, the woman at the well, felt that she could not participate in this morning tradition. She was separated from their fellowship. She was separated from the news and the gossip. She was separated from the support. Now, part of that could be because she was a five-time divorcee and was living with another man. They did not have the same travel we did, so there's a good chance that several, if not all, of her ex husbands lived in the same town. And they had families and cousins and brothers and sisters and co workers, all of whom had strong opinions about the woman who had had five husbands. And the fact that she was living with another man who wasn't her husband, that would make him number six, probably did not contribute her popularity. So the therapist in me says, what was going on with this woman before she met Jesus? What was going on? And I would have to say that as a therapist and probably everybody would agree that she had some issues. She might have had daddy issues. She might have had a father who was absent and never really spent the time teaching her what a godly, loving relationship looked like with her mother and with her as his daughter. She might've had intimacy issues. She might've never known what it was to be truly loved and cared for by another human being. Or she might've gotten the impression early in life that intimacy and sex were the same thing. And if you didn't have one, then you didn't have the other. She may have had abandonment issues, maybe somewhere in her life, a key person, maybe her father or her parents had left her and she was always afraid that somebody was going to leave her and therefore she would leave them before they had the chance to leave her. Maybe she had identity issues. We deal with this a lot at the high school. Uh, The therapist, the psychiatrist, Eric Erickson said that there were two important stages that happened in our teen years. The first one was identity building, and the second one was intimacy. And what happens is, if we encourage or allow children, younger and younger, to form dating relationships, then they learn that their identity comes from the person with whom they are in a relationship, and they never get to develop a personality or an identity of their own. I was just talking about this with one of our neighbors. He's a, a young man in high school. And as I shared this with him, little light bulbs were going off. And he said, oh, we've had this couple that they've been together since fifth or sixth grade. And we don't even think of them as two different people. We always think of them as, and you could fill in the blank, you know, a couple like this, Bob and Susan Tina and Dave, and they have just been together so long that we only think of these two people as one entity. Maybe she had identity issues, or she could have had abuse issues issues where somebody treated her inappropriately, or hurt her, or abused her, so that she had no idea how to build a healthy relationship. And if there's one issue we could probably all agree that she had, it would be a dependency issue. She did not know how to be dependent on the God of the universe. She only knew how to be dependent on either another person or on her feelings. So it seems as we prepare these Lenten messages that the this the theme for this Lenten season is God is in the saving business. Think about this the totally perfect son of God was sitting by a well and his name was Jesus and he could have condemned her for her poor life's choices. He could have railed at her about her, her life. He could have barred her from fellowship because of her sin. Jewish law in that day allowed for divorce, but it only allowed for three. So she was actually headed for double the legal limit. But God is not in the condemning business. God is in the saving business. I love 1 John 1, 9, when John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're taking notes and... Perhaps you are or not. Jesus did four things. He listened. He loved. He led and he lifted the lonely. Jesus listened. He didn't judge. He didn't condemn. He listened to the needs of this woman. And he loved her enough to share with her the living water. And he led her to a place where she could accept the gift of God's grace and then lifted her up enough that she could go back and lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's a a Greek idiom in here that you wouldn't know unless you read it in the Greek. So let me share something with you. When the woman at the well says, we know the Messiah is coming and he will explain everything to us, our translation says in some way or another, Jesus says, he who is speaking to you is he. What it really says in the Greek are these two words, ego, a me, ego, I am, ego, a me. Now John makes it a point in his gospel seven times to make sure that Jesus says those exact words, Ego, me. And that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, I am. What we would write as Yahweh. If you remember when Moses was standing before the burning bush and he said, what name should I tell the people? God said, I am who I am. Ego, me. So Jesus, very clearly to the woman at the well, says, I am the Messiah. I want to leave you with three quick points, poignant, direct, and quick. The first one is this, you don't have to find God. Hear that, you don't have to find God, God will find you. You don't have to go to a specific church. You don't have to go to a specific place, a town, a camp meeting, a retreat. You don't have to find God. Jesus will find you. That lonely woman drawing water by herself in the heat of the day had no idea that she was going to have a saving encounter with the creator of the universe. But God knew. You don't have to find God. Jesus will find you. The second point is this, you will never be able to make yourself acceptable to God. You will never be good enough. You will never be clean enough. Your heart will never be pure enough. Your mind will never be smart enough. You will never be able to make yourself acceptable to God. That's why Jesus died for you. It says in the epistles, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. Now, there's a program you can get, a a service provided on the internet called Brand Yourself. It's designed for people who are looking for a job or recent college graduates. And for $99, they will scrub your social media, your Twitter, your Instagram, your whatever, your Facebook and they will take off all references that might be embarrassing for you at a job interview or as you go on to seek higher education. They will scrub your identity of anything that would be controversial or get you in trouble, politically, religiously, or behaviorally. And that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus paid a price and his Holy Spirit and his blood cover us in such a way that we become new creations. We become creatures without sin. When I was in college, I was not always a godly man. In fact, I had the nickname Animal. I drank more than I should. I did some silly and stupid things. And halfway through college, I made a a life-changing decision for Christ. And I graduated, and I went to seminary, and I took my youth group on its first trip to Great Adventure for Christian Family Day. I got about 15 kids in the church van, and at the ripe old age of 24, we drove from Ballakinwood, Pennsylvania, over to Great Adventure in New Jersey. We got to that big stadium where they had the concerts. And I hear this voice that I hadn't heard in many years shouting at the top of his lungs, gleefully, joyfully, animal! And this six foot four gentleman named Rich with whom I had gone to college grabs me, picks me up, spins me around, and I'm not a small person. And he says, animal, how are you? And I share with Rich that I'm the youth pastor at Ballard United Methodist Church. And these are my 15 charges that we're here for Christian Family Day, to which he replies, no, and you could fill in the expletive here. (laughs) The youth group, all good, upstanding Christian young people are appalled that he would speak that way. I thought it was fairly humorous, and Rich was so surprised by the change that had taken place in my life. He spent the entire day with us and we shared the gospel with him. God wants to clean your slate. You will never be able to make yourself acceptable to God. And that's why he sent Jesus to pay the price for you. The third point is this. Jesus finds others through our witness Yes, point one says you don't have to find God. Jesus will find you. Point three says Jesus finds you through the ministry of other people. I want you to hear this. Authentic evangelism, writes George G. Hunter, flows from a mindset that acknowledges the ultimate value of people, forgotten people, lost people. Wandering people, up and outers, down and outers, all people, the highest value is to love them, serve them, and reach them. The woman left her jar, it says, and went back to the city. Now we know that the woman would be back because she left her water jar. The woman who hid from people because she wanted to avoid their scorn was energized to tell others, The very people who had hurt her because she found the Messiah. Or more appropriately, the Messiah had found her. It's called Good News for a reason. I'd like to finish with the story of Shannon Etheridge. Shannon was starting her junior year and was driving herself to school one morning. She took her eyes off the road for just a second to adjust her rearview mirror. When she hit something in the road to her horror, Shannon saw a woman lying in the road next to a mangled bicycle. By the time the ambulance had arrived, Shannon saw that the woman had died from her injuries and she was Shannon was in grief and shock and she even considered suicide. She couldn't believe that she should live when she had killed an innocent woman. She learned that the woman's name was Marjorie Jarster, and that Marjorie's husband, Gary, was out of town. When Gary returned, he asked if he could meet with Shannon. And on the night before the funeral, Shannon went to meet with the Jarster family. And she cried as Gary opened his arms to hug her. And then he told Shannon about his wife and she had been a devout follower of Christ who had worked for Wycliffe Bible Translators and had translated the Bible all around the world so the people might hear the word of God. As he described her, he said, there was no limit to how much Marjorie loved the Lord. And then he said, you can't let this ruin your life, Shannon. God wants to strengthen you through this. He wants to use you. As a matter of fact, I'm passing Marjorie's legacy of being a godly woman onto you. I want you to love Jesus without limits, just like Marjorie did. And I want you to let him use you for his glory. He gave Shannon a second chance, a chance to live in God's grace and mercy. And that's exactly what Shannon has done. She's a best-selling Christian author, speaker, and counselor. But without Gary's forgiveness, Sharon's life could have been ruined. Instead of hating Sharon, or suing her, or arresting her, Gary bestowed on her a new legacy. Through Jesus' death on our behalf, we receive a new legacy too. So on this day, if you've never met the risen Christ, I offer you that opportunity to look to heaven with your arms and your heart open wide and say, "Jesus." I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be in your kingdom. I want to be wrapped up in your arms of forgiveness. If you've never, I'm sorry, if you've made a decision to meet Jesus, but then you've walked away for whatever reason, people in the church, issues, problems, life, Jesus is still looking for you. Jesus still wants to find you. And he offers you the opportunity to turn back and enter again into his arms and his relationship and restore what you've lost. And the last challenge I have for you is this. If you have a relationship with Christ, if you're like the woman at the well and you've met the Messiah and your life is changed, don't keep it to yourself. Don't make it a secret. In fact, in the next 14 days, take the opportunity to make phone calls, write letters, social media, share the good news of what God has done for you. Because God is in the business of finding and saving lonely people. Amen.